Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 30th, 2012. For newcomers, help yourself to the free audios at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. There's over a thousand to choose from and maybe you'll begin to understand this big system that was built around you, built around your parents your, and your grandparents without them even knowing it was being done. These supranational bodies, as I like to call them, that were set out to do that very task over a hundred years ago, and you're living through the times when we're now global and international, and they're hammering it home right now as we bail out countries across the planet, and we're all interdependent, as they say, and uh, we're all one, of course. So uh, you're living through the fallout of it, uh, unfortunately. We are the generation that was chosen to go through it. So you'll learn how it happened, why it's happening, where it's going from here, and the kind of world order they plan to bring in. It's all—it's almost here, actually. Most of this part of this phase is here. They've got another phase after this one. It's an ongoing new world order, you see. And uh, at least you'll know what's really happening if you listen to these audios, the institutions, foundations, and so on, involved in the shaping of it and the control of it, too. Remember, too, you are the audience that bring me to you. You can buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, you can use a personal check to order. Some people send cash. You can use an international postal money order from the post office. Uh, and uh, you can use PayPal as well. Across the world, you're left with, with uh, PayPal, uh, MoneyGram, and Western Union. So remember, straight donations are awfully, awfully welcome as well. And what I try to do here is document the system that we're going through, where it started, the big organizations behind it that network together, uh, their annual meetings through organizations such as the Council on Foreign Relations. They have these world meetings and their front organization, massive organization called the United Nations as well, that was set up to be the kind of embryo of a global government. And of course they're calling it governance today because it's a, a, it's a private a public partnership that they do. It's basically fascism, if you like, where the big boys, international bankers, who fund all the foundations and all the NGOs to demand the very things they want them to, to demand, uh, and the government with a very receptive ear, all work together to bring in this new system, whether you like it or not. And uh, it's the end of sovereignty, as Mr. Rumpoy at the, the EU said last year, and others have said since. Uh, this end of national sovereignty, nation states, basically. Just like Cameron talked about the end of the old marriage system as well in Britain. So they're, they're really rampaging ahead. And for those who've understood history, they will know that they're following what was called the Communist Manifesto. Redistribution of wealth across the world. The world tr- turned into trading blocks, giant trading blocks, where countries will disappear within them. That's what they set up super parliaments for, like the EU parliament. And, of course, they want to do the same with NAFTA eventually. Once the U.S. has finished uh, destroying the enemies of uh, uh, central banks across the world. 
So it's all coming down the pike. That's the music coming in. I'll be back after this break. Hi folks, I'm back, cutting through the matrix. Years ago, years ago, people like Brzezinski talked about soft power being used across the world and at home as well to get policies through. Soft power are really, it's really comprised of the non-governmental organizations that uh, are funded, uh, well-funded in fact, they even have big staff and some of them got even pretty well almost office towers and pension plans and all the rest of these, these charitable institutions, these, these NGOs. Uh, and they're funded by the big, uh, as I say, the foundations behind them that really are the place where the banks, the international bankers themselves, dump their excess cash rather than put it into taxes. So they use these these armies of NGOs under, at the United Nations and elsewhere to demand from governments certain policies be put through, and governments are only too happy to hear it. They're waiting for them it's because they all work for the same bosses, the bankers, you see. And... Um, and, and that's the way the thing goes. But they use them across the world as well to, to stir up trouble. They put them into, uh, they might spend three, four, five years bringing them into universities as students across the world, uh, and they agitate and agitate, get organizations set up. Then they overthrow, the idea is to overthrow governments in other countries. So it's called soft power. The hard power, of course, is when you send the military in afterwards. And this article here is from, it's called from the Institute for Government that works with government, another private organization, charitable, of course. All, all these big ones, you, you get charitable organizations running spies, banks of spies across the world. They're all fronts, of course. It says, over the course of his 21 years existence, Joseph Nye's soft power has garnered a dedicated following amongst international relations uh, thinkers. But in recent years, the rising explanatory value of soft power means it's echoed almost daily across global media outlets. Further lifted by the potential it holds as a public diplomacy tool, they call it a diplomacy tool, soft power has been elevated to pride of place in foreign policy debates. But as the bandwagon grows, policymakers are in danger of rushing to develop soft power strategies before understanding what soft power resources they actually command. The aim of this publication, as with last year's inaugural New Persuaders report, is to refocus attention on understanding the resources that contribute to a nation's soft power and provide a comparative snapshot of those resources through a composite index. So it's a grading system. In international politics, soft power is the ability of one state to achieve preferred outcomes by changing the preferences or behavior of another state through the co-optive means of framing the agenda persuasion and positive attraction. Due to its inherently subjective nature, measuring soft power is fraught with difficulty. They they then go on to to describe how they've actually done it and graded them and so on. And uh, they they grade into this index that they they make up to uh, five objective sub-indices with government, culture, diplomacy, education, business, innovation, and seven subjective indicators. But they show you how it's done. And you're talking about really another army, as I say, soft power army that can be set across the globe to change the policies of other countries by demanding from within. Or they can do it at home as well when government wants to stir up riots, for instance. 
you all get out in the streets and, and riot and demand this and demand that, etc., etc. So, very important thing to read and understand, uh, and you can download this PDF. I'll put up the link tonight at cuttingthroughthematrix.com at the end of the broadcast, and you can read it for yourselves, download that PDF. Now, as we go global, of course, and I've watched this my whole life too, what you always got was, uh, the, old, the old way to do things was for the, gov- the public to build up gas works, uh, gas systems, uh, electricity, uh, plants and stations, things like that. And then in would come labor uh, after conservative, and, and then they'd nationalize them, you see. What they normally do is they run the things in the ground on the conservatives. That's how the, the game works. It's just a game between the two, you understand, uh, that are both in on it. And then in comes, and then you nationalize them. Then you get the public's money to, to fix everything that's bus broken, needs replaced and everything. And then comes conservatives, and then privatize it again. So, and, and they give it to peanuts to their, to their bosses. It's, it's a con. Everything out there in politics is a con for us to believe in. It's, only, it's like money. It's important that we believe in it, you see. Same kind of thing. And um, what they're doing now, of course, is doing the same thing internationally. They're selling off uh, your, your stuff internationally. Now that we're global, any country can come into your country and buy anything at all, even chunks of your land, whatever. And it's all been done through treaties, you see. But here's, I mentioned this last week to New Zealand, but this has a bit more information in it now. It says $5.4 billion of prime assets are on the block in New Zealand's sale of the century. New Zealand government is expecting strong interest from Australian investors as it prepares to roll out New, uh, New Zealand's 27, um, five point, what does it say here? And New Zealand's 7 billion, 5.4 billion American dollars worth of, uh, part privatizations over the next three years. But while it says it will welcome interest from Australia, New Zealanders will be on the front of the queue at the country's biggest sale of the government-owned assets in more than a decade, said Bill English, New Zealand's Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister. So it says here, uh, part privatizations. What they're doing with the new con, of course, is simply to have the public pay for the upkeep of everything and the the guys who own it uh, take away nothing but profit. They do this with roads and everything now in Canada and elsewhere and in the States. So we expect there would be quite a bit of interest from Australian institutions because these are utilities, energy companies, and they're in a pretty good shape, Mr. English said. And then they go on about uh, the, the, the other big things, the big projects that they're selling off too. The, the Mighty River Power, an Auckland energy retailer and generator with a net assets of $2.9 billion, uh, which boasted its, or boosted its profits by 50% to 127 million in 2010 to 11. And Credit Swiss Australia, in partnership with the first New Zealand capital, uh, Macquarie Capital New Zealand and Goldman Sachs, of course, New Zealand, were named on Friday as a joint lead managers from Mighty Rivers Partial Float. Israel's handing it all over to these boys because technically they own it all already. Really, they own the whole world really, did, don't they? <laughs> and Goldman Sachs is all over the planet. Uh, with, with big chunks of pretty well everything. So we're selling off our assets, as you, as you see, but we still have the duty to upkeep these assets for the guys who own them. And uh, that's the kind of deal that they've, they've made with every country, in fact. Isn't that wonderful? You pay for the upkeep at all. You pay for the use of it. And the big boys just take the profits to the bank. It's, it's not a bad deal at all. Now, in Ireland, of course... 
uh, they're wanting uh, a referendum on fiscal treaty. So 72% of them want a referendum on fiscal treaty. And they say that the Irish Prime Minister is a disgrace. A disgrace. It's worse than that, actually. And it says that the Irish government faces intense pressure to hold a referendum on the Eurozone fiscal treaty after a poll that showed almost three quarters of the public won a vote on the agreement. In an opinion poll published Saturday, 72% of the people surveyed said the treaty, which would tighten budget rules for the 17 countries sharing the euro, should go to a vote. Actually, they should ask, get a vote to get out of the, the euro. That's what you have to do. Some 40% of the 1,000 people questioned in the Sunday Business Post uh, RC poll said they would support the treaty. 36% were opposed and 24% were undecided. And it goes into the different organizations that have been talking about it too. But uh, unless you get out of the, the Euro uh, agreement, uh, nothing's going to change. It was just, the, Euro, the Euro agreement is, is this new Soviets. Get out of it. You've got to get out of it. And then just rip up all the debt, just like Iceland did, and say tough cheese, you know. Simple as that. Tonight, too, I'm putting up a link for, uh, <laughs> it's from universities, of course, doing experiments uh, to show that they've already actually used in the fields, farmer fields, uh, to do with their food once again. And they've altered various strains of bacterial uh, bacteria and other things, too. Uh, the RNA of it, the DNA of bacterium, and they're now putting it in the soil. I don't know if they're spraying it in the soil or what they're doing, but now it's all through your food. And then following up afterwards to see what effects it has on anything. So it's a university study, well worth reading. It's called Model for Dispersal and Epiphytic Survival of Bacteria Applied to Crop Foliage. Have a little perusal at that one. And... (laughs) <laughs> it's so incredible. I can remember two or three years ago in BC, uh, the government inspectors found uh, traces of the avian flu uh, in ducks, basically. Or, no, it was chickens, then, and they killed thousands of them. So uh, you understand, the, uh, all the top scientists have come out and said, these animals, these creatures, that, that birds and ducks and so on, and chickens have had this virus normally, uh, for thousand, 10,000 or more years. There are natural... Car- we're all carriers, actually, of different viruses. Most of them are called carrier viruses and are, har- are harmless. But because, of course, they say that the avian flu, the harmful one, uh, can mutate on its own, and uh, then, then anything at all that's re- remotely related to it should be killed. And they keep, whenever they find it, they kill the ducks and all the rest of it. Even the next bunch of ducks will get it too. But anyway, you can't really um, explain this or have debates with mad people who are out to kill off the world's food supply. So at least 10,000 ducks will have to be destroyed to contain an outbreak of bird flu discovered on two Victorian farms. Dr. Hugh Miller, the state's chief veterinary officer, says there's no possible risk or there's no risk to the public. Well, not there isn't. There isn't. But he says authorities had to act quickly to quarantine the two properties run by the same company northwest of Melbourne to remove any chance the virus could spread. Well, see, it's not a matter of spreading. They'll always mutate. All viruses mutate. And um, and, and therefore, uh, you know, you, you as well as killing off all the, all the, the birds on the planet, if, if that's what you, you really believe here. And I don't think that it does it by itself anyway, not in this instance. 
Anyway, it says the virus found in Bristol two prowess is a low pathogenic avian influenza and not the deadly form of virus that spread through Asia, threatening humans. So, there you go. There's another 10,000 ducks down the chute. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're back cutting through the matrix. And, uh, of course, Africa has always been used and abused for its incredible mineral resources, gold, diamonds, and God knows what else. So much, that even massive of uranium in the Congo, and, uh, and many other things too, chromium, etc. And uh, China's getting in there big time, and uh, is making a lot of folk a bit wary about it, but... Um, of course, when money talks, morality walks, and the leaders of Africa are a bit more corrupt than some of them here, only because they can get away with being more corrupt. Uh, there's more people watching in the Western countries, but uh, I think corruption is pretty well the same worldwide today. Anyway, it says the African Union has inaugurated its newly built headquarters in the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. The entire $200 million project was funded by China, as a gift to the African Union as Beijing continues to strengthen its influence in Africa. And then it's a 100-meter-high building and uh, big towers, etc. And uh, China is moving in big time. They're even building roads. They're building um, railways for them as well. And... um, and, of course, Africans generally will take anything they're given, uh, but when it comes time to... The way some strings are tied, I guarantee you, attached, and, and, and goodness knows how China is going to get things back if there's any trouble, but uh, you can imagine the military would have to go in, and they already have the military in some uh, African states already. So uh, it's quite interesting. Uh, Africa will always be Africa used by somebody else, and uh, all of its resources taken out of it, and the, the politicians at the top are just entirely uh, corrupt, you know. So that's just the way it goes. And of course, all the media is hyping up the the new report from all the different scientists to do with global warming, which has turned into global cooling. Uh, I've, I've sort of said about science, you know, it's one theory, and then it, but think before you know it, it's turned 180 degrees, and, and they don't notice. They don't notice they themselves have changed it, like it's always been that way. Anyway, forget global warming, it's cycle 25 we need to worry about, it says, if the NASA scientists are right. The Thames will be freezing over again. Why can't they just say, well, oh, things will go back, you know, it'll be pretty well normal and average as it has been for a while. No, no, they've got to have a crisis. So the Met Office releases its new figures which show no warming for 15 years. This is the office, of course, that's in bed with East Anglia University and, uh, and have all these thousands of guys making new careers on, on predictions of, of man-made global warming. The supposed consensus on man-made global warming is facing an inconvenient challenge after the release of the new temperature data showing the planet has not warmed for the past 15 years, and the figures suggest we could even be heading for a mini-ice age to rival, rival the 70-year temperature drop that saw frost fairs held in the Thames in the 17th century. Based on readings from more than 30,000 measuring stations, the data was issued last week without fanfare by the Met Office and the University of East Anglia Climatic Research Unit. I tell you, the climatic's the word because these guys swing from one end of the pendulum to the other East Anglia. eh? It confirms that the rising trend in world temperatures ended in 1997. 
Meanwhile, leading climate scientists yesterday told the Mail on Sunday that after emitting unusually high levels of energy throughout the 20th century, the sun is now heading towards a grand minimum in its output, threatening cold summers, bitter winters, and a shortening of the season available for growing food. So go from one crisis caused by one thing to its opposite, you see. And, and hopefully those guys at the, the, who are making their money off making these predictions and working with special computers can, can keep this one going for another 10 years or longer. Uh, some of them can maybe get lifelong careers at it. They swing back and forth all the time. Anyway, solar output goes through 11-year cycles, which is nothing new. We've been hammering on about 11-year cycles for, for ages. You can see it in tree rings as well. With high numbers of sunspots seen at their peak, we're now at uh, what should be the peak of what scientists call Cycle 24, which is why last week's solar storm resulted in sightings of the aurora borealis further south than usual. But sunspot numbers are running at less than half those seen during cycle peaks in the 20th century. Analysis by experts, there's experts again at the NASA and the University of Arizona, derived from magnetic field measurements 120,000 miles beneath the sun's surface, suggest that Cycle 25, whose peak is due in 2022, will be a great deal weaker still. So now it's going from, from hot to cold. According to this paper issued last week by the Met Office, it's 92% that both Cycle 25 and those taking place in the following decades will be as weak as or weaker than the Dalton minimum of 1790 to 1830. In this period, named after the meteorologist John Dalton, average temperatures in parts of Europe fell by 2 degrees centigrade. However, it's also possible that the new solar energy slump could be as deep as the Maunder minimum after astronomer Edward Maunder between 1645 and 1715 in the coldest part of the Little Ice Age when, as well as the Thames for, uh, frost fairs, the canals of Holland froze solid. And out of that, they gave us curling. It's the most boring game in the world, I'm telling you. And then they, they put it across to Britain. And, and Canada shows that half, half the winter, this exciting game of curling. You know, people throwing these big marble balls across ice. It's, it's as interesting as, as watching a spider spin its web. Anyway, it says, yet in his paper, the Met Office claimed that the consequences would now be negligible because the impact of the sun on climate is far less than man-made carbon dioxide. <laughs> <laughs> so the sun's got, the sun's not got much to do with, oh jeez. Although the sun, when you create a religion, I tell you, they really go all the way with it. Although the sun's output is likely to decrease until 2100, it would only cause a reduction in global temperatures of 0.8 centigrade, Peter Scott. One of the authors said, or finding suggests a reduction of solar activity levels not seen in hundreds of years would be inf- insufficient to offset the dominant influences of greenhouse gases. So the problem's still greenhouse gases, folks. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. We're back cutting through the matrix. And uh, I've read articles before about the United Nations and uh, the European Union trying to get folk to eat insects. I think there's even one Hollywood, I hate to call them stars, because they're not stars, they're just people who did a lot of things to get up where they are. You know, some rather things which most folk wouldn't do, I'd hope. Anyway, um, 
and, and they were promoting them, of course, to her children. She was promoting to her children and all. They all eat them and so on. Anyway, it says the EU will spend 3 million euros to research the potential of insects as an alternative source of protein. And it says food experts agreed that insects would probably have to be disguised for European audiences so the insect food could be used as an additive in burgers and other fast food. The UN's Food Standards Authority says the research, while insects have not traditionally been used for food in the UK or elsewhere in the European Union, is estimated about 2.5 billion people across the world have diets that routinely, routinely include insects. Well, it's generally countries that are awfully, awfully dirt poor. And, and uh, of course, uh, it gives you an idea where they're going to take you, doesn't it? Huh? Don't you get that? I hope you did get that. And also, too, they want to eradicate all uh, cattle f- farming as well from the Western world altogether. And they are dependent on eating these, these bugs. They're probably sprayed with all the pesticides, too, and all that stuff. But anyway, uh, they want to put in your fast foods and, and all the rest of it and bring you down to third world status. While many, well, many insects are regarded as pests, the UN's Food and Agricultural Authority is interested in promoting edible insects as a highly sustainable source of nutrition. Well, I hope they put it into their own cafeteria first and, and, uh, and be a good leader, you know, show, show how they do it and um, um, lead by example. Right? Isn't that only right, you know? So some worms contain three times as much protein as beef per ounce. Well, four crickets have as much calcium as a glass of milk. Oh, what fascinating statistics. I'm just I'm overwhelmed with all that stuff. Anyway, on to census. The census, of course. Lots of folk didn't fill in their census because uh, it's been privatized. The collection has been privatized and uh, by the military establishments across a good part of the world, actually. And this is hundreds face census prosecution. And it says hundreds of people are being prosecuted for refusing to complete the 2000 census because of its links to an arms manufacturer campaign group Count Me Out has said. Up to 400 are being chased up for not taking part in the nationwide survey, which the group said was believed to be due to Lockheed Martin being used as a technical consultant by the Office for National Statistics. It said 120 people have already been found guilty, a huge increase in the last census in 2001, when only 38 people were prosecuted. Count Me Out spokesman Cat Hobbs said, Ten times more prosecutions in the last census shows that people are really angry about the involvement of an arms company. The Office of National Statistics can no longer deny that giving the census contract to Lockheed Martin was a mistake uh, when so many people are being prosecuted as a result of it. He said one of those to be taken to court is conscientious objector John Voicey, who's 82. He said the same reason why I registered as a conscientious objector in 1947 means that I cannot do the census if an arms company is involved. My objection to the arms trade is a deeply held religious belief and leaves me with no choice but to break the law. It's an outrage that Lockheed Martin was given the census contract when so many people were forced to choose between their conscience and breaking the law. An ONS spokesman said there are always a number of people who, for whatever reason, fail to fill in their census. If there is evidence that they are willfully refusing, then a prosecution may take place as technically a crime. He said Lockheed Martin had also been involved in the 2001 census, but a spokesman for Company Out said there was less publicity about it then. So I'll put this one up tonight too, and you can have a wee deco, as they say, on about that. Now, they're so desperate, the United Nations, to get us all sterile. Because we just can't go sterile fast enough for them all. 
And it says here, a new contraceptive for men on the horizon. Just a couple of zaps of ultrasound kills sperm, say scientists. The high frequency sound wave found found it cuts sperm rates in rats. It's a good, you're making, your men are akin to rats now. Further studies are required to determine how long the contraceptive effect lasts and if it's safe to use multiple times. Well, it won't be. If anything that's whacking you like that is going to cause cellular changes and DNA changes as well, eventually, and it's not safe at all. So it says it sounds like one of those more extreme examples of birth control, but blasting a man's most vulnerable area with ultrasound could be the ideal form of male contraception, say scientists. I love that. Generally, they don't even mention their names. They're just, just experts and scientists. Experiments showed that high-frequency sound waves effectively cut the sperm counts. The equivalent outcome would result in reversible infertility in men. They can't say it's reversible unless you've tried it yet. See? Study leader Dr. James Suruta from the University of North Carolina said, unlike humans, rats remain fertile even with extremely low sperm count. So we don't uh, remain fertile. However, our non-invasive ultrasound treatment reduced sperm reserves in rats far below levels normally seen in fertile men. Further studies are required to determine how long the contraception or its effects last and if it's safe to use multiple times. And it says it's a perfect male contraceptive, would be cheap, reliable, reversible, long-acting, and have few side effects. The ultrasonic sperm zapping treatment potentially appears to tick uh, those boxes, although it remains to be proven with more research. So they're using basically, I think it's a 3 megahertz high-frequency ultrasound beam and that's how what they were using on the rats. And you get blasted uh, in your family jewels for about 15 minutes, uh, as long as the testes are warm to 37 degrees centigrade beforehand. <laughs> so it says the first attempt to use ultrasound as a male contraceptive was reported 40 years ago. Why are they doing it all again then? Eh? Several prostate cancer patients who were due to have their testicles removed underwent the treatment, which resulted in a dramatic loss of germ cells. But so would the radiation that they got as well, I'm sure. Uh, these men reported that the procedure was pain-free, only creating a gentle feeling of warmth. Warm and fuzzy, see? Said the authors of the new study writing the Journal of Reproductive Biology and Endocrinology. However, what it does do is it kills off the, the cells that create the sperm. Uh, that's another part of it too. Plus, if you go into um, studies that have been done on prisoners over the last 50, 60 years, they've done all this. They even tried radiation on prisoners. Uh, there's a great book that's called Acres of Skin. You should read that and see what these poor guys are put through. And they tried everything on them. So this, this, these articles are really to reinforce predictive programming of little articles you read along your life to make, oh, well, it's coming, I guess it's okay, it's coming, and then it's, it comes, you think it's fine. That's what it is. Now, there's a big sort of lawsuit going on with uh, Lord Rothschild, apparently, uh, is suing uh, people who are claiming they've been over to Siberia uh, on some big business deal, and um, it took Lord Mandelson, who was the head of the British, basically purchasing for the whole of the country at the time, actually the EU, for the whole of the EU at the time. And it says, Lord Mandelson visited a sauna in Siberia with a Russian oligarch and Nathaniel Rothschild, one of Britain's richest men, where they were, th- this, is, this is the story they're given to the press, you know. They went over to get thrashed with birch leaves and then plunged into an ice bath together, the High Court heard yesterday. Nothing to do with business. Uh, and the fact that Lord Mandelson uh, couldn't be involved in business since he was the head 
of all acquisitions and so on and spending for the EU. So that's their story there. It says, um, it says uh, details of the visit were disclosed as Nathaniel Rothschild continued his libel action against the Daily Mail over an article claiming that he arranged Lord Mandelson's visit to help smooth a £500 million business deal. And that's would seem more like it, of course. But Mr. Rothschild claims the former Labour Minister's presence was purely recreational. Yeah, purely recreational. I guess they often do this stuff, beat each other up and jump at the ice. Lord Mandelson travelled to the region on January 30th, 2005, as a guest of Mr. Rothschild, scion of the banking industry, and Oleg Deripaska, the billionaire owner of Russia's biggest aluminum plant. Also present was Peter Monk, a Canadian gold magnate, because there's the gold mines here too that we're looking over, and Sebastian Taylor, a friend of Mr. Rothschild. During the trip, the men were thrashed with bundles of birch twigs by a 25-year-old male banya keeper, <laughs> must have returned some of the money, before jumping into ice water to improve circulation and cleanse the skin. I think it would have killed most of them. Often wearing nothing but a conical felt hat to protect the head from the intense 200-degree Fahrenheit uh, heat, um, Siberians have bathed in banyas for more than 900 years. Mr. Rothschild said the whole point of the Siberian trip was that we were, went there, uh, spent a nanosecond at the aluminum smelter. We went uh, on then to the most delightful banya. Isn't that wonderful? And it says, uh, we were beaten by a 25-year-old banya keeper man who spent his life perfecting the arts of banya. How do you perfect ways of slapping folk with... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> then we jumped in the ice-cold water. It's the best way in the world to beat jet lag and so on and so on. But anyway, because I want to say that um, uh, Mr. Justice Tugginhat, where do these judges get their names? Tugginhat, eh? Who was hearing the case without a jury, was told that Lord Mandelson flew to Russia on Mr. Rothschild's private jet after meeting him at the World Economic Forum in Davis, Switzerland. According to the Daily Mail article, Mr. Rothschild acted like a puppet master, inviting Lord Mandelson along to a dinner in Moscow to impress Mr. Deripaska, who was in the process of signing a £500 million deal with America's biggest aluminum company, Alcor. It was alleged that Lord Mandelson's presence was there, uh, was required to assure both parties that EU aluminum import tariffs would not rise in the near future. Mr. Rothschild insisted that he only invited Lord Mandelson along because he was a long-standing friend who expressed an interest in visiting Siberia. The court was told that Lord Mandelson did not attend a dinner at the Cantoneta uh, Antinora restaurant, but instead held an informal meeting at the Russian minister in one of the restaurant's private rooms. So it was all a, a big business deal, according to this article. And according to Mr. Mandelson, he and Nat just went off to, to get splatted with uh, some kind of bamboo whips or whatever and, and jump into uh, some cold water to cool off. Quite something, though, isn't it? It's, it really is quite something. Uh, and when you read the, the articles, too, on Man, uh, Mr. Mandelson, his one here says, Would you give him a seat in the House of Lords, one of the highest honours in the land? Well, Gordon would. I was brown at the time. Peter Benjamin Mandelson, who's now Baron Mandelson of Foy in the county of Herefordshire and Hartlepool, in the county of Durham, Privy Councillor, born 21st of October 1953, is a British Labour poly, a Party politician who is current UK First Secretary of State, Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills, and Lord President of the Council. Actually, this is before he was elevated to oversee the, all the buying and so on for the EU. 
Mandelson served as Member of Parliament for Hartlepool for 12 years, and then he became a European Commissioner. We returned to the Cabinet in 2008. He was created a life peer. That's because you can't hold it in after jumping in cold water. In 1971, left the Labour Party, Young Socialists, where he joined to join the, the Young Communist League. I'm imagine that, eh? Uh, then the, the youth wing of the Communist Party of Great Britain. He was delegate in 1978 to the Soviet-organized World Festival of Youth, and that was uh, one of the big Soviet uh, organizations, and students in Havana, Cuba, with Arthur Scargill and several future Labour cabinet colleagues. He worked as a television producer at London Weekend Thames and Weekend World, forming an enduring friendship with John Burt, then the LWT's Director of Programs, before being appointed as the Labour Party's Director of Communications in 1985. Mandelson was able to secure close friendships with the Labour Party due to Uncle Alexander Butler, who had worked alongside many important Labour politicians during the 1960s. He ceased being a Labour Party official in 1990 when he was selected as Labour candidate for the safe seat of Hartlepool. He was elected to the House of Commons in the 92 general elections. Then it goes on and on and on about how he got in trouble uh, with doing things he shouldn't be doing. He's always doing that. He still is, of course, according to that last report. And uh, is anything but uh, scrupulous, put it that way. And so there you go. You become a baron. Just like his daddy. His daddy had the same position as he had because he was a big merchant too and a big, uh, you know, hander of cash to government in certain sectors. And that's how you get up there in the world. Now, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, who came out with uh, the vaccinations and what, what they were doing to the people, then he was hammered by the establishment as fighting back. I'll put an article up about that tonight. So he's taking it to court uh, and to prove his findings, etc., etc., to show the, the negative effects of vaccinations. I've mentioned before about uh, the signs are all around you of a decadent society. You understand to conquer the world, you've got to make everyone decadent. Uh, that's just long-standing truth. The Soviets used it, and uh, Besmanov talked about it too. And uh, and eventually, of course, anything goes. Nothing bothers anyone because everything's morally relative. Uh, and even when people come and grab your neighbours and haul them out in the middle of the night, like like uh, the Stasi used to do, uh, well, everything's well. It's just you know, just the way it goes. Private abortion clinics are now to be allowed uh, to advertise on television. I think a year ago or two years ago, I mentioned the fact that it's, uh, the NHS could actually do it. Now private ones can do it. Advertising watchdogs ruled yesterday that private clinics can carry abortions for profit and they'll be allowed to promote their services on television and radio. And so now restrictions have meant that only not-for-profit organizations have been allowed to advertise family planning services, including abortion. This is why just one advert by charity Mary Stopes International has ever been aired on TV. The Daily Mail reports that when it was shown in 2010, it attracted more than 4,500 complaints. I mean, it's a bit of a nuisance eating your dinner and you're watching that getting slopped into a pail, isn't it? You know, they call it family planning. <laughs> what a joke. Now, Britain... Uh, <laughs> This is coming to the U.S. This is Obamacare because, as I mentioned before, the RAND Corporation, and I put it up a year ago, did a study for the U.S. government in Obama on what kind of health care to give the public, and they used Britain as the, the model, the copy. And Britain is an, an awful, incredible mess with health care. 
as they slash everything, slash everything, slash everything to the bone. The National Health Service panel defines ruling for rationing decisions. Now they're telling you how they manage to, how they can categorize every patient and tick them off into categories where you go forward for an operation or they don't, they don't, you're not worth getting an operation, put it that way. Uh, cataract surgeries out, knee replacement, and other low clinical value treatments. Here you are blind, you can't see, but it's called a low clinical value treatment now. Must only, must only be restricted on the basis of strict evidence-based criteria, the National Health Service panel has warned. So knee replacement surgery should only be restricted on evidence-based ones, criteria as well. Uh, inconsistency in access to low clinical value treatments leads to postcode lotteries, the quality, innovation, product, productivity and prevention, right care team said. This is the right care team was commissioned by the National Health Service Medical Pre- uh, Director, Professor Sir Bruce Keogh, to determine how the clinical value of such treatments should be decided. So things that, that once were awfully important uh, now really have no value at all. Why well, you don't need that, just stumble around. Here's a stick, you know. We'll give you a, a helmet as well in case you bang your head into the doorposts. Uh, back with more after this break. Hi folks, I'm back cutting through the matrix and we'll go to the callers. There's Judy from Florida on the line. Are you there, Judy? Hi, Alan. Yes, hi. Hello. Hi. Good. Yeah. Um, I've spoken with you a couple times before. Um, I'm calling tonight because, uh, I don't know, there's a few things that uh, have been weighing heavy on my mind. Um, and uh, I've been, you know, active for a while uh, regarding uh, political action. Um and not that you remember, I don't expect you to, but, but for a long time, um, I've been studying a lot of subjects in the political spectrum and in, in, in you, know, uh, you know, social aspects and so on. Um, I know that uh, I, I, I'm really nervous because of uh, the fact that I act as if I still have the freedom of speech. Yeah. But I... I had a, an epiphany this afternoon, and I, I know subconsciously it, it's, you know, roamed through my mind, but it's like I no longer plan, really, for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's dangerous for me because, um, in, in a way, uh, I, I you know, feel defeated. Um, I don't really feel safe anymore. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I don't, I'm not here to have you comfort me or anything, but... I, I really, I don't know if there's something um, that I should uh, look at in order to keep going uh, mm-hmm. with, with with what um, I feel is right, what I feel is necessary um, in my activism. Yeah. That's one thing well, I wanted to discuss with you. You're quite right, though. I mean, because you, you understand if you've gone that far uh, that the old's, Pulling out the flag and, and uh, standing up for it and so on and getting it back. It's way beyond that stage. You understand that? I think you understand that. And um, uh, even when people are protesting about things, we're already global. Uh, and uh, there's more things to come, much, much more to come very quickly. And 
you have to then look into yourself to see what you want to do, and that, that's where you are, uh, and why you should do something, and, and is it worth it in some cases, or maybe you're, you're going into the wrong sectors and trying to help the wrong people or whatever. Um, I think the up-and-coming thing for the future will be how, how do you help ordinary people get through this, because we are going through it. So, I mean, we've come through a lot of it already, uh, and uh, they're only now announcing it too. All these, this, this global infrastructure, uh, the, all global infrastructures are coming out in the open today, all signed, sealed, and delivered by presidents, prime ministers across the planet. They've bypassed all charters of rights or whatever, uh, and uh, uh, there's been an awful lot of fallout when it comes down the pike uh, because they're determined to, to really... Take, take the last bit of strength and, and money and, and resources out of the countries that are finishing off the plan for the globalist agenda, which is mainly America and the Western world. So you have to plan for the future for yourself. And for the, a, lot, a lot of people have already come to this stage of realization. Some have left the country and gone to countries, in fact, which maybe will be the last to be affected. Every country will eventually be affected. It's a global order. They're going to miss nothing. But some countries will last quite a few years yet before they're touched. Um, and you have to think of all these consequences for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the only reason why I'm still in the country is because I have a daughter that, you know, really said she didn't want to come and visit outside of the country. Yeah. Um, and that, that's just the way it is. I mean, and, and I based my decisions around that, whether that was right or wrong. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what to do, though, Judy. What you do is email me, and I'll give you a longer answer, if you like. So email me. I'll do that. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, Werner from New Brunswick, um, maybe we can get you tomorrow. From Hamish, myself, from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God, your God, school with you. <laughs>